Thank you for downloading the Bristol Lectures podcast, brought to you by the University of the West of England. In this podcast, we are joined by Teresa Wise, CEO of the Royal Television Society. Very, very warm welcome to this first face-to-face distinguished address in a very, very long time. It is so very good to see you. Um, As I said, I'm Lynn Barlow. I'm an Assistant Vice-Chancellor here at the University of the West of England, and I look after external engagement with the vibrant creative and cultural industries in the city region. I'm also a journalist and documentary maker, so I'm particularly pleased to welcome this evening's speaker, Theresa Wive, who is Chief Executive Officer of the Royal Television Society. I also should declare an interest, um, as I am the English Region's trustee on the RTS board, and I chair the West of England Centre, and I know there are some of my friends on the committee, on the West of England committee in the audience, so thank you for coming. As a university with a thriving portfolio of creative courses, our undergraduate filmmaking and photography courses are ranked fourth in the UK. We work hard to ensure that our students develop the skills and understanding to have successful careers as storytellers and content makers. And in this region, the creative sector is booming. My colleagues at the university will soon be publishing some updated research into the size and scale of the sector. We've seen real growth in the last few years. There are now around 180 individual companies working across four main genres, factual, natural history, animation and branded content, as well as post-production houses and facilities. Our film and television studios, The Bottle Yard, you may have heard of them, is in the process of building four new bespoke sound stages. We are a UNESCO city of film, and of course we now have a Channel 4 Creative Hub too. We think that the aggregate turnover of the independent sector in the Bristol City region is approximately £200 million. Now that's significant growth, because the last time my colleagues did this research in 2017, that figure was near £140 So we are having a fantastic time. So do look out for the full Go West report when it's published in the autumn. There will be an event around that, and I know they've got some very interesting things to say about the sector. And of course, this industry is changing, and Theresa's going to talk about that in a little minute. But we no longer switch on a box in the corner to watch the telly, do we? Content is ubiquitous, available 24-7 on devices big and small. So as I said, in a few moments, we'll hear Theresa's thoughts on that, and there'll be plenty of time for questions before we move upstairs to network. But first of all, I'm going to hand over to Stephen Dayef. Now, Stephen is a third-year student on our entrepreneurial course, and he's going to tell us about his amazing podcast startup, which focuses on one of the university's key strategic priorities, mental health and well-being. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you so much for the introduction, Lynn. So, good evening, everyone. My name is Stephen Daff, and like Lynn said, I'm in my final year of studying business team entrepreneurship here at UWE, and I would like to tell you a little bit about myself. So, I was born in the Philippines, and I started to work at the age of seven cleaning old bottles for reuse and packing rice cakes. And this was the beginning of my success. Because from an early age, I started to get an understanding of what it takes to be resilient, what it takes to have work ethic, and what it takes to get what I want. But My journey as a student 
and as a learner. Me and traditional education, we weren't friends. I didn't get very good grades and I didn't really engage in school, so you probably have a pretty good idea of what my teachers might have been thinking. And I too started to believe that I might not be able to amount to anything until I found the Business Team Entrepreneurship Programme. I started unlearning the belief that I have to be academically able to be able to get to somewhere, to be able to get good grades and to be a person of impact. The Team Entrepreneurship Programme gave me the opportunity to grow, to be able to stand here and speak to you this evening, and especially learning that I have the ability and the control to be able to navigate through my own learning and development. And now, I'm a co-founder of PAVE. PAVE started during the first lockdown as a podcast channel, contributing towards breaking the social stigma on conversations around mental health. And now, we have developed into a mental health and well-being resource startup. We have started to make our impact in Bristol through partnerships with primary schools and creating a well-being workbook and now in the process of creating a well-being diary. Because PAVE's vision is to ensure that all students at all levels have the tools and the resources that they need to look after theirs and others' mental health. So, our offering to universities and their students is a go-to place, a platform for well-being and mental health resources. So, what makes us different? Well, we are going to be covering more than just anxiety and depression in which existing platforms mainly cover. We will be also covering university-related issues such as inability to eat healthily, homesickness, as well as the much more challenging mental health cases such as trauma, PTSD, personality disorders, just to name a few. But that is not the only thing that will make us different. We aim to build communities within every university that we come in to partner with. And because we have students at the heart of what we do, by having university students as part of our community co-creating our resources along with mental health professionals, we will be capturing the essence of having resources in which students will find useful and something that they can create, relate with. My name is Stephen Daeff and if anything of what I said resonates with you or you would like to help in any way, I'd be more than happy to have a chat afterwards because together we can pave the way towards a much healthier mental health. Thank you. I told you it was impressive, didn't I? Okay, I am now delighted to introduce Theresa Wise. Theresa is Chief Executive Officer of the Royal Television Society, Bristol's leading forum for television and related media. The RTS has 15 centres across the country and almost 5,000 members. And anyone in the broadcast sector will tell you that an RTS award is much coveted. And for our students who win RTS student awards, it's the first thing you'll see on their CVs when they graduate. And by complete coincidence, this year's regional RTS awards take place on Sunday at Bristol Old Vic. Theresa has been at the helm of the RTS since 2013. 
and has led a transformation of the society to become a vibrant, contemporary organisation reflecting the industry and public it serves. She also serves on the board of the International Broadcasting Conference, IBC. Prior to the RTS, Teresa led corporate strategy at the Walt Disney Company for Europe, the Middle East and Africa. And before that, she was a partner in the media and entertainment practice at Accenture. Teresa holds an MBA in Classics from Oxford and an, no, not an MBA, an MA in Classics from Oxford University and an MBA from the London Business School. I also know she's a huge fan of natural history programmes. So what better place than Bristol, home to the world's greatest natural history programme makers, for her to share her thoughts on the future of television. Please welcome Teresa Wise. Thank you so much for that kind introduction, Lynn, and thank you to Yui for asking me here. I feel very, very honoured. Um, so, good evening. I'm Teresa Wise, as, uh, as Lynn has introduced, and it's my great pleasure to be with you this evening to talk about the future of television. I have been fascinated and absorbed by television from a really early age, starting with a love of film. My professional career, as Lynn said, has included working for British Satellite Broadcasting, and that's even before it was um, acquired by Sky. It was meant to be a merger, but it was an acquisition. And then British Aerospace in the early days of satellite television, then moving on to management consultancy to the media sector of Deloitte and Accenture. And when I left management consultancy, I worked for Disney, as Lynn said, as Senior Vice President for Strategy in London and Los Angeles. Returning to the UK, I originally set up my own consulting business, but was then hired to be Chief Executive for the Royal Television Society, where I've been for the past eight years. The Royal Television Society, or RTS, is an educational charity, and its objective, main obje charitable objective is to promote and celebrate the art and science of television and its related fields. And indeed, it's been the fusion of art and science since the early 1920s, together with entrepreneurship, that has made the world of television what it is today, a ubiquitous and powerful presence in our lives, not just in the UK, but globally, and possibly extraterrestrially. Tim Peake actually sent video messages uh, back here when he was in space. And it certainly shaped our culture throughout the last century and going into this one. The RTS defines television as any video storytelling on any platform delivered to any device. And that, in fact, fits, um, I think Lynn said I was a classicist, it does fit the, the original derivation of the word, a hybrid of Greek and Latin, meaning seeing from a distance. Television has transformed from being a single black and white cathode ray tube sitting in the corner of the family living room with just three channels um, to slim 5K digital smart screens in every room, on the go, around us and in our pockets with almost limitless channel choice. Behind the LCD, OLED and LED screens that we watch, there is a vast and complex ecosystem of businesses, talent and technology, government policy and consumer behaviour that drives the world of television today. It has incredible influence and presence in our lives. Te television provides not only a means to inform and entertain, but also the extremely important social function of connecting us with our wider world. And we've seen that in particular recently with lockdown viewing um, of the daily news conferences, for example, 
the nation's anchor in an uncertain and rapidly evolving crisis last year. To develop a view of the future of television, I will firstly outline the current scale and composition of the sector, and then applying the mantra of, to predict the future, one needs to first understand the past, I will examine the drivers of the last 25 years that have underpinned the significant changes in the medium. Looking at those forces, plus a few more, we can begin to paint a picture of what the future could look like. And please note, when I, when I envisage with you all the future of television, my comments and points of view are just that and should not be taken as investment guidance. <laughs> to give you some figures on scale, the overall UK entertainment industry, which incorporates television, film, music and gaming, is worth over 68 billion in revenue. And a 2021 report by PwC predicted that it could reach 88 billion by 2025, given the predicted growth of the sector. Interestingly, a large part of the screen growth is from streaming services, and I guess that won't, won't surprise you. Domestically, television alone, and not the rest of, of that uh, entertainment sector, brought 16 billion pounds, excluding the BBC license fee, in 2018 to the UK economy. This includes advertising, subscription, obviously some sponsorship and branded content, and the BBC licence fee then adds £3.75 billion on top of that. However, these headline components mask the significant value flows occurring beneath them, which include writers, right per rights purchases, e.g. for sport, programme commissioning, producers, hiring of talent, payments to agents, and all those employed in the plethora of craft and design skills associated with programme making and post-production. And, of course, the technology and related services to make it all happen. But it's not just about our domestic services. Beyond our borders, our content performs extremely well. British television is universally known for incredible heritage, creative talent and global resonance, and is hugely in demand abroad punching significantly above its weight. The television industry alone accounted for over £1 billion of international revenue, according to a report by Producers Trade Body Pact, covering both international commissions and sales, so that's international original commissions of shows, and then sales of finished product. Our scripted dramas lead the way. Shows such as Chernobyl, Doctor Who, His Dark Materials, War of the Worlds, Downton Abbey, Peaky Blinders, Call the Midwife, Midsummer Murders and Sherlock, just a few of the many UK shows winning audiences and accolades beyond these shores. It's also significant that in 2013, for its very first original series, Netflix chose to remake a BBC show, House of Cards, which for those of you old enough might remember it originally um, aired here in the 90s. We also make and export blue chip documentaries of the highest quality, um, and I'm in the right place for this, so the estimable likes of Planet Earth and Blue Planet series, providing flagship content for broadcasters and platforms all over the world, alongside UK-originated global factual brands such as Top Gear, MasterChef, The Weakest Link, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and Strictly Come Dancing, proving their pedigree with long-running franchises. So who is watching our television shows overseas? 
The US continues to be the most important export market for the UK, contributing 32% or £466 million of all revenue in the 2019-20 to 20 financial year. Second, and actually to my surprise, is France with £102 million pounds, um, and completing the top three markets for the UK um, is uh, TV exports is Australia with sales worth £98 million. Pounds. No word on whether this is a part exchange for all those episodes of Neighbours and Home and Away. To break down the television business is complex as the value chain operates with, and this, I'm in the right place, it's a business school, so we'll be discussing value chains a lot. And the value chain often operates with significant blurred boundaries, with different players in the, in the industry offer, off, op, occupying specific or multiple areas of the television landscape. Broadly, the fabric of television is comprised of six primary pillars, although you could get a lot of variation within that, from conception to consumption. If you look at a TV show as a product, this is the life cycle and the players, invol and, and the players involved in each, at each juncture. Firstly, there's origination, the conception, making and financing of the television shows. This covers the creators, writers, production companies and physical studios, such as Elstree and Pinewood, to everything from to Elstree and Pinewood and their homes to everything from the Crown to RuPaul's Drag Race UK. Then there are the commissioning points. If you're making a show, you typically need to know it will have somewhere to air and reach audiences. So a commissioner will order a series and often commit some finance to assist with getting it made. They are the gatekeepers en route to taking the show from a concept to a fully realised project with a viewership. Thirdly, there are the channels, and we're all familiar with them. Their schedules will be filled with a mixture of original commission content, as well as off-the-shelf acquisitions, meaning they're purchased as ready-made and not necessarily bespoke programme for their channel uh, alongside those original commissions. Fourthly, there are the aggregators, such as Sky, Virgin Media or Freeview, which provide the bundled offer to consumers. Fifthly, there's distribution. And distribution is often described as two things in the industry, one which isn't as germane to this, to this point, but that can be sales of programming content from a library. Or it is, can be the actual distribution of the signal, so via cable, satellite, broadband, mobile or indeed microwave distribution, essentially how you get your content to an audience member. And finally, consumption. Well, that's, of course, us, the viewing public, which is highly segmented geographically and demographically, with wide-ranging viewing habits, likes and dislikes. According to a report issued by Ofcom this year, the total average minutes of viewing per person per day in 2020 was 340, which is quite incredible. Or to give another metric, five and three-quarter episodes of The Great British Bake Off, up by 47 minutes since 2019. Obviously a very large increase, and it has been steadily increasing before that, but not surprisingly, last year's increase a uh, very marked increase was uh, not surprisingly down to people spending more time at home during periods of lockdown. Ha! Huh. Great slide, huh? Quite busy. So, as I mentioned a few moments ago, the boundaries between these pillars are often extremely blurred, with some of the larger players looking to become vertically integrated operations, and that's why you've got some of these extraordinary, um, very, very large, large players up there. Many broadcasters and platforms are producers or own production companies, and all of them commission. They have long-term deals or ownership of physical studios, 
and exclusive talent deals with specific creators or production entities. Many are ultimately owned by tech or telecoms giants, as this slide demonstrates. And you can also see by this slide the scale and complexity of ownership in the industry and also the global nature of it. Um, so very happy to talk further about it. It's a lot of complexity. And many of those deals have actually only recently been done. So um, Warner, Warner Media and Discovery being one of them. And before that, Warner Media was bought by AT&T. So turning a little bit um, to uh, and the audience and, and, and other aspects, when an, an audience thinks of television, they think of the programmes and the actors they love. But there's also an extraordinary range of skill sets involved um, beyond the on-screen talent that we see. Um, we referred to those earlier, so these include writers, directors, producers, presenters, makeup artists, lighting and camera operators, editors, stage and scenery builders, researchers, a plethora of technology and IT skills, and of course the commercial finance and management functions to run the business of television. And as well as the functional, technical and commercial elements of television, there are a number of TV genres, some of which Lynn referred to um, in her introduction. And these provide an additional shaping and determining force, as each genre has its own set of dynamics and commercial frameworks. I think you would all recognise the main genres as being scripted, including the linchpins of drama and comedy, sport on its own, very significant, and then non-scripted, including reality shows and shiny floor shows, panel shows and quizzes, factual, including documentaries, and news. And we also have children's programming. The economic drivers across these genres, let me flip to some of those, are quite varied. So, for example, it's very hard to make money in children's TV unless you're global and can also market toys and ancillary product from the show, um, i.e. if you're Disney, for example. News is typically loss-making, and so it's really interesting to see GB News and Times Radio launch new news channels in the UK or announce one in the case of Times Radio in recent months. Sport is very profitable if you're a football player. <laughs> Um, and their agents, but the rights are massively expensive uh, if you're, um, uh, if, if you're a, a TV operator. But it can be a key driver of subscribers, so sport's very influential. And as we know, responsible for the most expensive advertising time on the planet, with a 30-second slot during the US Super Bowl, setting advertisers back around $6 million. Scripted programming, which includes drama, can be really profitable, but it's becoming increasingly expensive to make, with talent both in front of and behind the camera commanding significant fees. The rush for great drama has led to huge content inflation, currently running at about 10% in the last year, which is quite incredible. Comedy can be very hit and miss and doesn't always travel as well as other genres, but when you have a hit, it's quite extraordinary. Unscripted, including reality TV like Love Island and shiny floor shows like Strictly Come Dancing, can be hugely lucrative, both in terms of the format rights, which um, is just paying for the concept of the show and the ability to make it locally, and also finished programme sales. Fans of UK MasterChef, for example, will also happily watch an acquired overseas version. Plus, it can be relatively inexpensive to make it. By contrast, it's often more challenging to make a lot of money from documentaries, and these are often produced for non-profit reasons. 
With this in mind, it's extremely important to understand these economic considerations when operating the business of television. And this substantially determines what organisations will focus on, depending on their origins, specialisms and expertise, as well as any public sector or public service obligations. Okay, so I've briefly covered the current scale and composition of the sector. Let's now review the history of television. It started with a Scottish inventor and engineer called John Logie Baird, who was born in 1888 and achieved many firsts in television technology. He started experimenting with television in 1922 and took out his first television patent in 1923. He demonstrated the first prototype television in 1925. Interestingly, the Television Society, that's us before we got our Royal Charter, was formed in 1927 with the purpose of bringing together engineers to share, experiment and progress the marvel of what had been discovered with a cathode ray tube and wireless communication in this then emerging field. Since those first discoveries and inventions, technology development has been key to driving the art of the possible for television. Transmission was, up until 1990, by analogue microwave in the UK from huge aerials such as Crystal and Alexandra Palaces, with the familiar receiving aerials installed on the roof of our homes and large heavy TVs in the sitting room, or TV I should say, with just three channels, initially in black and white and then colour as the technology became available. Then transmission was totally transformed by cable and satellite communications in the 1990s, and around 15 years later, there was a further transformation brought about by broadband to and from the home, enabling on-demand viewing. So an analogue world transitioned to a digital interactive environment. These new means of transmission arrived on the scene through the 80s, 90s and noughties in a race of technical advancement, each trying to achieve dominance over the other. A lot of money was made, spent and lost during this period. Digital technology made it possible to transmit huge quantities of data, voice and video to more sophisticated devices and as microchips and surface mount technology accelerated according to Moore's law, devices became smaller, lighter, wider, thinner and smart with extraordinarily high, high picture quality. And then we had further advances into 3D, 4K, virtual reality and augmented reality. Fun fact here. Sir David Attenborough is the only person to win BAFTA awards for programmes in black and white, colour, 3D, 4K and virtual reality, which is an impressive and unique achievement spanning all eras of technological advancement. The ability to store huge quantities of data cheaply enabled recording and then video on demand or VOD services, which transformed consumption behaviour from purely li linear to a hybrid of linear, time-shifted and pure on demand streamed with consumers having extensive choice of what, when, where and how they viewed content. No longer did consumers have to wait for scheduled programming in specific slots. And this in turn led to the rise of binge viewing culture. I guess we've all done some of that. Television and the internet collided, leading to the contemporary definition of television I gave at the beginning of this speech, as any video storytelling on any platform delivered to any device. We've come a long way from Netflix's origins as a revolutionary DVD by mail service. Over half of all Emmy-winning titles this year were produced by streamers, a testament to how significant a force these services have now become. 
viewing of subscription VOD or SVOD, subscription video on demand services such as Netflix and Amazon, almost doubles in 2020 to an estimated one hour, five minutes per person per day, which underscores the importance of their arrival as one of the most impactful developments that's shaping the future of the TV industry today. Lockdown also saw the rise of the silver streamer as older generations embraced video on demand. With the ranks of streamers swelled by Apple TV+, Stars Play, Discovery+, the UK's Britbox, and the launch of Disney+, which happily for them in some ways coincided with the first COVID-19 lockdown, the streaming sector in the UK is braced for an even further boost, supplied courtesy of NBC Universal's Peacock, Paramount Plus and HBO Max, causing many commentators to ask, are we at or even past peak TV? Answer, it certainly actually doesn't look that way yet, or are, although there are some pertinent questions around discoverability, market saturation and a considerable focus on brand building. Also, as US studios increasingly withhold their content to feed their own streaming services, channels around the world are now turning to the UK for their fix of English language content. <coughs> so what are we watching? An incredible 29 of the, top, of the top 30 most watched titles in the UK on subscription service in the first quarter of 2021 were actually on Netflix, according to Ofcom's Media Nations UK report in April. And four of the most popular were domestically produced. Uh, Bridgerton, The Dig, Behind Her Eyes and Fate, The Winx Saga, proving that homegrown original programmes continue to draw in UK audiences. But it's not just about the, the SVOD streamers. Broadcast TV also continues to pull in the viewers, particularly with drama, news and event television, from shiny floor Saturday night formats to live sport. Who here was glued to Emma Raducanu's phenomenal US Open success on Channel 4? And it's telling that the most watched uh, broadcast programme so far this year was Euro 2020 soccer championship final between England and Italy, with a combined audience of over 22 million UK viewers on BBC One and ITV. If you're a Line of Duty fan, you'll be one of the 16.4 million UK viewers who tuned into the series finale on the BBC making it the most watched broadcast drama moments of last year. While ITV delivered one of the headline talking points of 2020 by screening Oprah Winfrey's interview with Meghan and Prince Harry. So, in response to this change brought about by the streaming platforms, governments have had to respond to the rapid technological enablement of television and the pressing commercial appetite of businesses wanting to access a large consumer market previously dominated by public service broadcasters. This has had a material effect on what public service broadcasters do, as in many areas, they're actually being challenged to compete against well-funded existing players such as Sky, and newer entrants, for example, Netflix, Amazon and Apple, with fundamentally different business models, goals and objectives, and deeper pockets. The streamer's original programming arms race has actually distorted the market, although it's caused a massive boost to the creative and production side of the industry with some hefty numbers. So last year, Netflix boosted spend on making TV shows here in the UK to £750 million as it looked to maintain its market position and consolidate its original content offering, featuring such jewels as The Crown and Sex Education. 
For context, the BBC's total annual content budget across UK radio and online hit £2.3 billion to the end of March. And within this, the spend on television content was £1.6 billion. So, and ITV spends about £1.1 billion annually on content for its portfolio of channels. This appetite by the global streamers for British-made shows is reshaping the UK t uh, television and film industry and driving a boom, only temporarily hampered, in fact, by the pandemic. It's also created 30,000 new jobs and training for 10,000 new people as of last year. It's also been seen recently in Amazon's monumental decision to switch filming its new Lord of the Rings TV series from New Zealand to the UK by Disney's long-term deal to take over much of nearly all the space and stages at Pinewood Studios, Sky's development of major new studios at Elstree, and by Netflix's recent decision to set up a 14-stage production hub at Shepperton Studios, a commitment expected to last an initial 10 years. Hollywood has recognised that Britain's got talent and studio space. With the big pockets of the streamers in town, the assumption could be that our public service channels have very tough budgeting decisions to make, as income is not increasing fundamentally, and the money needs to stretch over lots of different genres. But it's a challenge they do do incredibly well. Peter Kuzminski, director of highly acclaimed BBC drama Wolf Hall, pointed out that for the $110 million that was spent on one series of The Crown, the BBC made 18 different dramas. It's definitely a case of not what you have, but how you spend it, especially if you know your market. And happily, despite the increasing competitive battle for UK eyeballs and creative talent that sees old money, the UK broadcasters, vying with large amounts of new money, the streamers, there's been a clear benefit in coming together for the greater good. And we see this via what's referred to as the first and second windows, for example. So public service broadcaster shows that once aired um, have often have a longer-term home on, say, Netflix. So Bodyguard is a great example of this. It aired on the BBC, actually produced by World Productions as part of ITV studios for the BBC, but was available to Netflix viewers outside of the UK. There are also co-production partnerships, um, where the series is co-funded and commissioned by both PSBs and streamers, such as the successful and highly entertaining Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett adaptation, Good Omens, a result of an Amazon and BBC production partnership. Early on, the series Ripper Street encapsulated this collaborative spirit when the BBC found that its budgets were too stretched to continue with a successful show. Amazon stepped into the breach, funding further seasons in exchange for an exclusive first window, which was followed by broadcast on the BBC. With this approach, everyone wins, not least the fans. Also, those big US streamers are very much looking to continue teaming with the broadcasters in the UK to co-produce their hits, as execs from those streamers made clear at the recent Edinburgh Television Festival and RRTS Cambridge convention last week. On a government and regulation level, there are other areas of debate. Government policy and regulation has historically been to enable a free-ish market in the UK with a legal requirement to buy a television licence per household, but also freedom to subscribe to as many other TV services as a consumer wishes or can afford. This has resulted in a very competitive television landscape for traditional players such as the BBC and ITV, 
who are now obliged to compete against some very capable <coughs> international and homegrown organisations. It has now reached the stage where the question is being asked as to whether a BBC licence is justifiable and fair, with some critics likening it to the window tax, which was imposed in England in 18, sorry, 1696 and repealed in 1851, after campaigners um, argued that it was a tax on health and a tax on light and air. It's becoming a tricky and difficult area of policy and will take some time to work through. So let's watch this space. It's certainly an issue that will be dominating Nadine Dorries' inbox as our newly appointed Culture Secretary. And as we know, another huge inbox item is the potential privatisation of Channel 4. These issues aside, as the landscape evolves, PSBs, in step with government, are also taking thoughtfully ambitious steps to future-proof their businesses in a number of ways which will enable them to embrace ever-changing digital developments. The PSB's own VOD platform, BritBox, has so far launched very successfully in the UK, the US, Canada, Australia and South Africa, with plans to reach 25 territories. Furthermore, at our recent industry summit in Cambridge, ITV revealed plans to further increase its direct-to-consumer uh, streaming service. I think that's ITV Hub. While Channel 4 spoke about its plans to launch its own advertiser-funded international streaming service. It seems no one wants to be left behind in the on-demand revolution. Also, last week at RTS Cambridge, the former media minister, John Whittingdale, and believe me, the ministers were going thick and fast last week, announced plans to expand the types of programmes the nation's PSBs are required to produce and to enter air, to include distinctively British content, saying that in the face of increased foreign investment and competition, the move will ensure that the UK continues to be a creative powerhouse for unique high-quality TV shows which showcase British culture and are enjoyed the world over. Turning to another interesting TV trend, the money and influence generated by television has brought some fascinating new entrants to the world of TV production. Heavyweights setting up their own production companies in the last year include Hillary and Chelsea Clinton, who actually appeared at our convention last week, Harry and Meghan, who didn't, um, and Barack and, and Michelle Obama, whom we'd like to get at some point. <laughs> Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine production company was recently sold for $900 million after making shows such as The Morning Show, a flagship Apple series, and Big Little Lies, an HBO series that broadcast on Sky Atlantic in the UK. Indeed, in theory, it's relatively easy to set up a production company in quite a leveraged way, and that is to say with a small team of permanent staff and an array of subcontractors, and there, there you go, off you go. This has become a recent trend of those who have achieved a, a level of public or celebrity status that gives them access to commissioners at the channels. But while barriers to entry to create a production company are low, getting programme ideas to be commissioned remains just as challenging, as I'm sure some, some of you in the production business um, will attest to. Turning to another really significant genre, the impact of sport, and particularly football, in the UK and Europe has also been a transformative influence on television, impacting consumption behaviour and the structure of the business of television itself. It also had a lasting impact on the structure of sport itself. Sky's move to buy football rights in the UK in the early 1990s led to the formation of the Premier League, which also had a major influence on the creation of the Champions League football, 
displacing the European Cup. The sums of money have been eye-wateringly large, and a large part of that value, as we've mentioned before, has flowed back to the teams and players and agents. Sky took the gamble to buy those football rights and created the Premier League as a subscriber driver, and it worked. Satellite TV completely changed the viewing habits and fabric of television in this country. And sport as a subscriber driver continues to be a successful model to gain a user base, as has been seen with Amazon and BT buying rights to Premier League games, Discovery buying the rights to the 2020 Olympics and beyond, and Amazon buying the rights for the US Open, Tennis Open as examples. This dynamic has created policy and budget challenges for the public service broadcasters in relation to their remit to show sport on terrestrial channels. Cricket, for example, has only been watchable by a subscription. And this year's Olympics resulted in frustrated viewers watching a schedule of reduced live events and heavily edited highlights, which starkly con contrasted with the national experience of 2012. But... On the other hand, there has never been quite so much live sport on television across a huge range of sports, including football, cricket, Formula One, boxing, rugby, cycling, tennis, horse racing, American football, baseball and basketball, as well as many other minority sports. A significant proportion of viewing consumers have also adjusted to this norm of live sport. They are prepared to pay for it and could not envisage it not being there. A symbiotic relationship between sports fans and the channels with sports rights has now been indelibly established, and the snowball effect rolls on with newer streaming services such as DAZN. So what about the future? Firstly, what impact could technology have or continue to have? We saw it had massive impact historically. In terms of infrastructure, we'll still continue to see the rollout of fibre to the home and the wider adoption of 5G and its successes. This is all part of creating broadband Britain, and it will enable download speeds of over 100 megabits per second to the home to become the norm, and so indeed supercharging the streamers and streaming services to lead even more viewing via video on demand and pay-per-view services. Infrastructure, however, will not be the constraining factor in the future of television. It will probably be consumers' price tolerance and their perceived value of the offerings from their chosen television provider or aggregator. So I believe that most of the technologies for the next 10 to 15 years are firmly established and the battleground is not necessarily around mode of transmission but the content offered by a trustworthy brand and the relative ease to find the content. Hence the big numbers spent on commissioning or acquiring flagship or anchor content whether sports and we saw that with the rights bidding wars or big budget drama the crown for Netflix or entertainments such as Amazon's coup in securing Clarkson Hammond and May for the Grand Tour, or indeed Clarkson's Farm. The race to launch new streaming uh, services will continue, but this in due course will inevitably need to some consolidation in the sector, as consumers can only choose so many subscription services and only have so much share of wallet to spend on television. It's likely that we'll see the emergence of more aggregators coming from different places, to simplify the end-user viewing experience in the discovery of content. The influence of brand, price and offering will become crucial to the success of these aggregators and regulation is seeking to actually protect in this world the prominence of our public service channels and content so that UK citizens can still find it easily. As consumers make their choices, we are likely to see industry consolidation 
in the form of mergers, acquisitions, some failures and partnerships and joint venturing. So that wonderful map of who owns whom will kind of change very dramatically around those dynamics. As well as the role of smart aggregators continuing to grow in importance, at the other end of the spectrum, there are other significant viewing platforms and trends shaping the content business, such as the growth of YouTube, which remains the most popular user-generated and professional online video services, service. Viewers spent an estimated 41 minutes per day viewing YouTube videos last year. To give context to this rapidly growing presence of YouTube, Robert Kinsel, YouTube's chief business officer, last week revealed that the company is roughly neck and neck with Netflix on revenue and growing faster than Netflix. This boom is augmented by superfast and ultrafast broadband in 65% of households and homes connecting to their TV set to, it's connecting their TV set to the internet at 79% of TV households. We also have other similar platforms vying for eyeballs such as TikTok and more will come. Although Jeffrey Katzenberg's very well-financed Quibi didn't live up to early promise, the short-film content trend is likely to continue, given our on-the-run lives. The UK television landscape is therefore set to be increasingly competitive, and established UK broadcasters will need to be innovative, retain and build talent, become agile, versatile and collaborative, reduce costs and increase productivity and really leverage the competence and capabilities that they've built up in the last 70 years or so. It'll undoubtedly be challenging, but there's no reason to believe that UK PSBs and similar cannot survive and prosper in the future world of television. Driven by government policy, another significant shift here in the UK specifically is the financial commitment to the industry outside of the capital city and our PSBs are taking up the baton. Channel 4 has stated that they'll be spending 50% of their money outside London, with ITV committing to a £300 million spend. Over half the BBC's workforce is now based outside of London, and it aims to grow this share to two-thirds by 2027. Among others, BBC Sport and Children's programmes are produced in Salford. A new technology hub is being established in Newcastle, Doctor Who is produced in Cardiff, Peaky Blinders in Liverpool. And nearly half of ITV's UK employees are based outside London, with significant presence in Cardiff, Leeds and Salford. And Channel 4, as we know, has opened a national new headquarters in Leeds and creative hubs in Bristol and Glasgow, and is committed to having 300 jobs based in the nations and regions by 2021. Here in Bristol... The value of PSB investment can be seen, for example, in the BBC's Natural History Unit, leading to the city being home to specialist teams ranging from underwater filming specialists to feature film composers. A cluster of independent natural history production companies have grown around the unit, such as Plimsoll Productions, Silverback and the Humble Bee Films, all of which were founded by former BBC staff. Bristol is also a hub for animation, with Wallace and Gromit producer Ardman Animation, perhaps the best known among the cluster of toon shops in this lovely city. The drive for great content produced in the UK will lead, lead to continued high demand for a vast array of skills and capabilities. And this is positive news for the UK and presents super career and job opportunities for those interested in the sector. But it's also creating something of a skills uh, dearth 
So training and education at all ages and levels to provide this growing workforce will be absolutely critical going forward to maintain the UK television industry's leadership position. In terms of content, we might see in the future increased experimentation and, and innovation of new genres to mimic the success of various sub-genres that have grown up and been really successful, like true crime and young adult, just, just two examples. It all goes back to finding compelling stories that audience want to watch, as well as making content for the broader spectrum of viewers. So in summary, we have all these worlds colliding, big and small budgets, global and local stories, big and small screen, international, national and regional players, traditional and new broadcast platforms, on-demand event and tune-in moments. It's never been a more exciting time to be in the medium. The limits will be imposed by the viewers, how much more we want to watch, what we want to watch, and on which device we, um, we want to watch it will dominate the industry discussion for years to come. I think the final word can go to Nicholas Jackson, head of the FCC in the US, who said prophetically in 1968, the future of television is no longer, no longer a question of what we can invent, it's a question of what we want. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Teresa. I'm, I'm just absorbing some of those figures there, and I, I think I, I can't quite get my head around $6 million for 30 seconds. That's just extraordinary, isn't it? The power totally, of the power. Totally of the extraordinary. It's the prestige spot. So I think it's probably more than just the eyeballs. It's what it says about you as an advertiser. Absolutely extraordinary. Okay, so um, let me just tell you how you can submit questions. It's up there on the screen. Um, as I said right at the beginning, if, you're, if you need Wi-Fi, please join the cloud. Uh, my colleagues are moderating those questions. Um, so please put them up there. I'm going to ask you the first question. You, when you um, accepted the job as CEO at the RTS, did, did you have an inkling that this was what was going to happen to broadcast and television, that we were going to have this explosion? Because I remember being at um, an RTS London conference when Ted Sarandos gave his first speech to the UK audiences about Netflix, and we were all going, mm, not sure about that, how very wrong we were. Um, I have to confess, I absolutely didn't anticipate this speed or, um, or size. Um, and in fact, I have to also confess, I probably wrote an article, because I used to write articles for our magazine, saying, why on earth did Netflix commission something in the Nordics? Who wants to watch a Norwegian programme? So I can completely confess <laughs> to absolutely not, not foreseeing it. Um, I guess some of my time in Disney, um, we did have a bit of a precursor to it. So when I was at Disney, um, Hulu had recently started, which is the US streaming services for the um, terrestrial uh, broadcasters there, and was enjoying a lot of success. So actually, uh, and the other things about Disney at that point, which was, I guess, 10 years ago, is it was well understood at Disney that in order to survive the future, if we did have to have a streaming service where people operated, um, uh, you know, people, people offered on demand, that you needed a big amount of content. So it's a bit like a supermarket where you actually, you might stock your own brand, um, but you also have to typically stock a lot of other brands. So you're a trusted brand and maybe people go to you and, and buy it. 
and you probably you might not be able to get away especially if you're a studio with a limited slate you might not be able to get away with just that so i think people were aware back then of the impact um, but uh, back then, Netflix had snuck in with a, a deal with Disney to take some of their library product from Stars Encore, who licensed it. So absolutely, you know, the, Disney was completely shocked and actually took some of the rights back. But that had all happened kind of under their noses. So even some of the smartest players really didn't see it coming at all. It's ordinary, isn't it? OK, let's, let's go on to some questions from the audience. OK, we've got one here which says... Do you think the move to many, well, you can read it, but do you think the move to many third parties or private broadcasters has improved diversity on our screens? If so, then why? Um, I think it probably has played a part, actually. Um, I think, but I think the move to diversity is probably not because, solely because of the, um, the television industry. I think it's social change. And I think the you know, television is here in part. Uh, in fact, the public service broadcasters have a duty to reflect our society. That's part of their mission. So as our society has changed, um, I, I think it then became obvious that there was a gap between how the public service broadcasters were representing Britain and what Britain actually was. So this is talking about, about Britain specifically. Um, I think in the US, um, there were different um, trends, but not, not surprisingly encompassing some of the same, the same issues about um, minority, minority representation. So we saw early, perhaps earlier than the UK got to it, um, Disney um, uh, with ABC Productions had productions like Grey's Anatomy, which had uh, a showrunner of colour and a, and a very largely black cast, actually. Um, so it was one of the early forerunners, and then you had This Is Us and many other. So I think we've seen in the US some of the forerunners, and obviously some of the people that have entered the market have come from the US. So I think there's been a little bit of influence, but I think it, it has been in part um, society and, and obligations on the ground that has made everyone raise their game. Um, I don't know, again, Lynn, this is probably an area that you look at a lot, so I'd be interested your thoughts as well or anyone else yeah I think there's a lot of research going on in in that uh, in in exactly that um for you know to get some answers to that question basically but it is it is about um you know you talk about content you talk about having great content being the thing to get your <laughs> six million dollars for 30 seconds um, and it is about storytelling isn't it so it's about finding stories and um it, it's the hunt for stories and the and the way we tell those stories which is very very important i think so any more questions? Oh, here we are. What was your career path? How did you know what to do next after completing your first degree at university? Now, there's a very good question. Oh, my goodness. Well, that, thank you. Thank you for, for, for being interested. Um, I, I think I, I didn't have that much of an idea, I would say, of what I would end up doing. So um, having done classics at university, it's not, it's not an automatic vocational degree. Um, I think I was, I was pretty keen at university on being a journalist. Um, so like, like Lynn here, who's our, our marvellous chair. Um, and um, I actually applied for a few journalist jobs. I'm quite grateful I, I was rejected, actually, in part because I then applied for something which was rather out of the blue, um, which was a job for then BT Enterprises. 
um, which was the part of BT back in the 80s, which ages me rather, um, that was looking at what you could do on value-added, just post-privatization value-added services. So it was some of those early almost publishing business that you could do on audio. So big, a long ago precursor to podcasting, really, um, uh, back in the mists of time. And then from there, um, I did, I, so I did some product marketing and so forth, and actually then got recruited to British Satellite Broadcasting from there. But I did notice, I, I think I was very lucky in my first career. First of all, I got very excited by commercial and business, which I hadn't really been exposed to. And, and I had some, some rather wonderful women who were in terrific roles there. And one thing I did notice about them is that um, whatever their first degree was, a lot of them had business degrees. And so I thought, oh, I probably need one of those. So I ended up, um, after going to uh, British Satellite Broadcasting, enrolling for a part-time business degree at London Business School. And that was very, very hard to do. And it was in the early 90s when um, there were lots and lots of rounds of redundancies. So I think I was probably made redundant from about two, three jobs in the period it took me to complete that MBA. And it was, it was really, really hard. And interest rates had gone up to 15% and so forth. So, um, but... Having got through that, I then um, uh, sort of um, got, got a chance to work at a management consulting in their media practice, having had both te in telecoms and media. So I had telecoms and media experience and the business degree. And then in those days, I kind of parlayed that into management consultancy, uh, which was very exciting, very high growth. And Deloitte at that stage was doing a lot of telecoms privatization work. And I did telecoms and worked for some production companies as well, like Planet 24 and BBC Transmission. So I got a very good exposure to the industry there and then went on from there to Anderson Consulting, which then became Accenture and worked in, in their practice. So that's the, the career path. Um, so I, I've been kind of at various stages. I guess my, my career route has been, I would say, very commercial. So it's a very, sorry, that, that was a very long answer. But in summary, um, I came up the commercial path, and uh, and I think it's it's been a, a nice way to do it because everything has to have uh, you, know, you. It's a nice way to bound what you're trying to look at um, and using analytics to kind of understand it. Notwithstanding that it's an extraordinary creative industry, and you can't always put a number on some of those things, but it's useful to, to be able to try. And interesting that you're now in the charitable sector. Next question. I mean, because, you know, the, uh, the RTS is a, is a charity, isn't it? So all of that experience into, into the charitable sector, it's really interesting. OK, let's go on to the next one because we've got quite a few now. In the area of high-end TV drama, we've seen fast growth in the transitional production of drama with huge budgets, shows such as Bridgerton, as you talked about before. How far do you see this trend going in the next 10 years? Well, I don't think we're seeing high-end drama going away. Um, and it is going to be produced... Um, globally, I do see those budgets will, I, I think they'll keep going up because as we've got more and more streamers, we've got more and more buying points um, and they will want to chase down um, uh, amazingly compelling content. But I also think that those inflation rates of, of TV drama mean that they're looking at what, uh, well, what can we do in other genres. So Amazon has been, again, it's not cheap by any means, so, but with Clarkson's Farm, um, sort of a different genre, breakout success. True Crime, which is a form of documentary, but has very, very big popular appeal. Um, so there's some documentaries which would cover perhaps more investigative things, and some of those are also breakout, but probably less 
popular appeal than, than true crime. So I think we'll have investment in other formats as well, because um, you know, there, there will be a stage at which you, you might top out. But so far, we haven't seen it. Um, and I think for the UK, part of, the, you know, part of what we should be doing is making us, ourselves the natural home, which we are now and, and we need to continue to be for, for high-end drama, because it brings so many other great benefits to our, to our sector and, and the country. I can see Fiona from Bristol Albert Theatre School nodding her head there. Um, on to the next question. News is generally loss-making, as you said. So where do you see TV news going with the increase of the free-to-access news on YouTube and major social media platforms? Is there a future in live studio news? What a great question. Well, I think pro tem, the government sees it as really important that we do have some public service broadcasting news. So I think um, I, I, you know, whatever flavour of government... I think it's still seen as very, very important. So I think we will still have subsidised news on public service broadcasters in some way, shape or form. Um, obviously, they, with viewing uh, for young people going online for news, they have, they have some challenges breaking through, although they did an amazing job during, uh, during the pandemic when people were looking for a trusted source. So I think it will continue. Interestingly, there are profit-making news services, um, but not over here. So Fox News uh, is profit-making. Uh, probably not, not an answer everyone would want to hear. Um, but, um, uh, so you, you can make money out of news, but, um, but I think there is possibly... I mean, GB News and, um, uh, and Times News have both decided that the fact that we, the, they believe the voices are centre-left and that there's space for something that they would describe as centre-right, or, um, you know, uh, and that, that is their view. And it could, it, it's possible. They've done their calculations of the market. So, so we'll see. I mean, clearly GB News is going through a very turbulent time uh, for those that, that read the press. Times Radio has had some, a modicum of success, certainly in, um, uh, uh, in um, press terms and pick-up terms and awareness terms. So we'll see if they replicate that uh, in, in TV. So I don't think TV news from a studio is going away. But, um, and an awful lot of TV studio news is actually on the streaming services and is consumed in that way. Or well, not the streaming services, on, on YouTube and social, I should say. So, so I don't have a, a definitive answer, but I don't think we'll see TV news going away anytime soon. But I also don't think it'll turn radically into a profit-making genre either. Next question. What is the biggest challenge that television faces? Is it the erosion or threat to public service broadcasting? Which is very close to our hearts. So we've just got a Channel 4 hub and we'd like them to stay. Yes. Um, well, I guess it depends on who you are as to what, what you think the challenge is. So I talked a lot in my talk about what it is to be, a, what it might be to be a successful public service broadcaster. So perhaps... Uh, rather than, I mean, clearly there are some, you know, some policy things in, in, the, in, in the mix at the moment, which we referred to. So licence fee uh, will be reviewed, almost certainly. The future of public service broadcasting is now subject to a consultation. And Channel 4's future as to ownership is being, is being reviewed. So if you, um, I don't think any of the PSBs would say now that they don't want change. They all want and need change. And they would say that keeping pace with that is part of their future regardless. So in that sense, I think the regulators and, and policymakers and the PSBs agree. So what would I do if I were um, Channel 4 or BBC? What would, I, what would I do more of? I think 
it's a hits business um, and Channel 4 has got slightly different challenges from the BBC because it doesn't have its own production and production as we've seen, in-house production, is going gangbusters. Um, so that's growing considerably. So it's not like the BBC, although overall licence fee income is declining, studio revenue is, is increasing quite dramatically. Yeah. So for all of them, the answers are probably slightly different um, because they're slightly differently structured, whether, whether you're um, a commercial PSB like ITV Channel 5, Channel 4 to some extent, or, or a, a pure, um, purely funded, if you like, in public sector PSB like, um, like the BBC. I think the key thing are two, is twofold. Um, well, actually, its, it's main thing is to do with R and D. So, you know, in the consumer, in the pharmaceutical sector, R and D is bringing new drugs to market. Um, some say that has some something in common with the media sector, but I will I couldn't possibly comment. Um, but uh, but in um, uh, what what we need is talent spotting, and what we need is the right skills to perform all those great. Um, roles that we spoke about, I spoke about in the talk. And we also need to spot writers. We need to spot them. I mean, we've, we've got a fantastic tradition of creating writers. And because of the move to drama uh, and, uh, and to fiction, basically, as being a very high-end area, writers are a very scarce bit of that value chain. So we need to bring new writers through. and We need to find ways of training them, whether that's writers' rooms, which they have in the States and a little bit here, um, whether that's training uh, in, in higher education to get writers through. And we need to get them, uh, we, we need to be able to take risks on them. Now, if you're an established commercial player, it's very hard to take risks on an unknown writer and commit so much budget to that. But if you're the BBC and Channel 4, you can do that. That's part of your purpose. And it's certainly what, what Channel 4 has, I know, been doing. I've spoken with, with Channel 4 tonight. So I think, I think it's more of that. And the, guess what? The nice thing about bringing new talent through and taking risks on them is it's also cheaper. So it means your budget can go further. And as those people re, you know, get prominence, they can go off and work for shed loads of money and good luck to them. And that's fantastic. Yeah. But we need to bring the next generation through. So it's a very long answer. But that's, that's my thought on, on that. That's the biggest challenge is bringing new people through. That's and music to, to our ears in a higher education establishment, is it not? Because that's exactly what we're doing is we hope to bring new talent onto the stage. Not the lack of money, that bit, but that's, that's something else, isn't it? Okay, let's rattle through, through a few of these because we've only got a few more minutes. What advice would you give to the film and television students here today wanting to break into television? Um, well, the great thing is if you have those journalism skills, there's tons of ways to break into it. And so there's a certain number of jobs in traditional news and so forth. Those probably, for the reasons we discussed, aren't going up dramatically. Um, but, you know, they do take on um, people and also they're um, distributing more um, outside the capital, which I think is also good for people who want to work outside, outside of London. So getting in is very competitive, always has been, but there are routes in and I think more of them are looking at graduate traineeships and so forth. But... Those skills of journalism are really, really useful in, in lots and lots of ways. So journalism skills, you, with those skills, you can become... You know, we, we have a big need in the media sector for comms people. So people are crafting our messages brilliantly, telling our stories. 
really, really important. Um, we all complete, completely depend on them. So that's kind of PR, in-house PR, agency PR. Another thing is creating content for other publishers who, who are not traditional TV. So multiplicity of websites and people publishing great stuff online, they all need journalism skills and they all need it combined with digital skills, which, which uh, again, next generation's grown up with. So don't think of TV in a narrow sense. Think of it as story, video storytelling on any platform and you'll have a lot to go at. It's very good advice, journalism, con storytelling and content making. Okay, what awareness of technology increasing into the future do you think traditional tech roles, such as editor or camera operator, will merge with other production roles in the future? Who do you really think traditional tech roles will merge? Um, yeah, okay, so I think you're never going to get rid of the craft of your director of photography um, uh, editor, camera operator. There are absolutely, you know, all productions d uh, depend on those people. But I think they will need to skill up in some of those digital areas. So I think it's about you know, people coming through who are already skilled in digital and skilling up those people who have done their craft for many years. So uh, some, some retraining might be required for some people. Or maybe they're so senior they can depend on quite a lot of assistance in the game, which is also um, good. Thank you very much. Next question. Oh, that's <laughs> brilliant. I watch so much TV. So I watch tons of sport, big Formula One fan, um, love the cricket, this uh, uh, um, and so forth. Um, I was uh, somewhat obsessive on the Olympics when that was on. Um, and then I also love my drama, so I am currently watching Vigil, which I find slightly, slightly mad, um, <laughs> but bit. quite enjoyable. Um, uh, what else have I loved recently? I mean, the, the, It's a Sin, amazing, amazing Channel 4 drama. I mean, completely standout, I think, just as I May Destroy was standout last year. Um, uh, other things I've enjoyed, I love some of the big American content so, um, uh, as well. So um, uh, I, I like Veep, um, some of the comedy, the Amanda Yanucci. Silicon Valley, very, very funny indeed um, about tech startups and so forth. So, so yes, I'm a, I'm a massive fan, um, uh, shamelessly. Nothing to be shamed of. Uh, how will small startups... How will small startups with content... Uh, be able to complete with the like, compete with the likes of Amazon, Netflix? Mm. Well, it's a good question. Um, and it's not, uh, you do need some scale to say commission. I mean, um, so startups, I think the difference is Amazon and Netflix don't have their own in-house producers. So they do commission other producers. So they're, they're getting, but the issue with Amazon and Netflix commissioning is they often can't, connect, can't um, commission smaller or startups so they do a lot of commissioning. The reason is that people need to produce stuff at a lot of scale for those streamers. They need to produce a lot of episodes and often quite quickly because they, they often sort of um, publish them all at once. Um, so, but for a, new, a startup producer, uh, I think a lot of commissioners will tell you a great idea can come from anywhere and that they are pretty conscious of it. And they know that they need to search uh, around the startup area to ensure their future, to future-proof them. So I think the answer is it's hard, but don't give up. You know, find ways to produce beautiful things um, cost-effectively. Find great ideas, team with great writers, collaborate with each other. Um, and, and don't give up 
don't give up pitching, um, I think, is, is the right answer. And then go to somewhere, think quite carefully about what kind of outlet might like your stuff. And obviously, there's always, there are always you know, ways, other ways of making money as well as traditional broadcasting. So YouTube is quite interesting, as is, as is TikTok and some of those other um, models. Very good Certainly advice. start out on YouTube and TikTok, um, you know, because then you'll be noticed as well. Yeah. Well, I think we've got time for one more quick question um, before we adjourn upstairs. And I know Teresa is going to stay around for a little bit, so um, you can pick her brains further. Oh, quick. You quoted some oldie names for the future. <laughs> Clarkson, BBC. Clarkson's farm has been extraordinary. There was a, a, a minor riot, was there not, by the shop the other day, and they had to call in the security guards to move out the people that had been that arrived to buy a loaf of bread. Extraordinary. Anyway, right. Um, you quoted some oldie names to the future. Isn't the audience demanding more diverse content? It's a sin. I may destroy you. Small acts. And do organisations like the RTS have a role to play in oh, that? We absolutely have a role to play. And the fact that I mentioned Amazon and Clarkson's Farm certainly doesn't mean there isn't diverse content commissioned by them, although it's, that, was, that was a standout commission in terms of expensive talent at that point. Um, so, yes, I mean, Amazon's actually commissioned, got a long-term deal with, with Michaela Cole of I May Destroy You. So there's no question they're using British and diverse talent. Um, Netflix and Bridgerton used a lot of diverse talent as well. Um, do we have a role to play? Absolutely. So um, we, just to give you some examples, um, we, um, our, our juries who judge awards, um, our programme awards juries were 32% um, from people of colour. Um, our winners, uh, many of them were... Um, sort of black-led production companies. Um, and we, so we, we are quick to make sure that we represent modern Britain as a society. Um, we are a neutral, a non-lobbying body, but what we're here to do is to field the right things and to, and to, and to be modern. Um, so although the name is quite old, um, I, I, you know, the, the purpose of it is to be modern. But that's not to say that, you know, some amazing talent also, you know, I, I, I wouldn't denigrate... He's not everyone's cup of tea, Jeremy Clarkson, but he, he does appeal massively. So one, one shouldn't fly in the face of that appeal um, just for the sake of it. But it both can coexist pretty easily. It's a fine moment to, uh, to end this evening's address and, and Q&A. Um, Teresa, really fantastic. Lots and lots of really interesting things to think about and so important to us. Uh, not only in Bristol City region, but here at UWE, because we are constantly changing our courses, constantly trying to make sure that our students uh, graduate with the right skills to have a successful future in what is a wonderful industry. The creative industries are the most exciting industries to forge your career in. Um, please join me in thanking Teresa uh, for such a, an illuminating address this evening, and then do join us upstairs for some refreshment. Thank you very much. For more information about the Bristol Lectures series, including other podcasts from the series, visit ue.ac.uk slash Bristol Lectures or follow hashtag Bristol Lectures.